At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 11, The Berlin Airlift, Part 1. So in this episode, we're going to be covering the political origins of the Berlin blockade and some of the city's history leading up to that point. The Berlin blockade and subsequent airlift marked a drastic escalation of the Cold War that had been simmering since the end of World War II. It also represented the first major showdown between the Americans and the Soviets. Before this, the Soviets and Americans had mainly engaged in diplomatic maneuvers and in petty insults. Or they supported proxies, such as in Greece, where the Americans and the British supported the Greek government against the communist insurgency there, or Stalin's support for the communist parties of Eastern Europe and establishing communist states there, both of which we have reviewed in past episodes. The Berlin blockade saw Soviet and Allied personnel engaging in direct small-scale combat on the streets of Berlin with the ever-present danger that the situation might escalate into full-scale war. Despite Soviet and Allied cooperation during the war, they disagreed bitterly about many aspects of post-war Germany and the administration of the German capital, Berlin. As we spoke about in Episode 4, the Soviets wanted to create a security zone in Eastern and Central Europe of friendly Marxist states to guard against the possibility of future invasion. Russia had been invaded twice in the last 30 years at the cost of roughly 23,394,000 lives and an estimated 2.6 trillion rubles in damage. Therefore, the Soviets wanted to see Germany pay for the destruction they brought on the Soviet Union. Moreover, the Soviets wanted to bleed the Germans so white that they would never rise again. The United States, in contrast, wanted to create an economically prosperous Eastern and Central Europe that was integrated into the world economy. The Americans believed that the breakdown of international trade had worsened the Great Depression in the 1930s, and that these issues had created the geopolitical instability that led to the development of extreme politics in Germany, Japan, and Italy, which culminated in the Second World War. They believed that an economically prosperous and democratic Germany would be a peaceful Germany. Thus, the United States saw Eastern and Central Europe becoming communist as disconnecting these markets from world trade, causing economic instability, which would recreate the economic instability of the 1930s, and thus the extreme political politics of that era, which would inevitably lead to another world war. Therefore, from the very beginning, American and Soviet long-term objectives ran counter to each other. After the war, Germany was divided into four regions administered by each of the victorious great powers. The Allies formed the Allied Control Council as a governing body with each government represented by a senior military official to administer this, the country and to coordinate the different zones. Each Allied military commander would administer their region of Germany independently but would cooperate through the council on issues that affected the country as a whole. The city of Berlin, like Germany, had been divided after the war into four zones, with each of the representative powers 
France, Great Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union, each occupying a part of the city. Similar to Germany, Berlin was ruled by an allied council named the Kommandatora, which attempted to govern the city and coordinate the different zones. The word itself is unique, as it is an amalgam of Russian and German. Despite the fact that Berlin would be deep inside the Soviet zone of occupation, no one gave serious consideration to Allied access to the city. It was a detail left to be worked out by commanders in the field. When General Clay and British General Weeks brought the issue up with Field Marshal Zhukov, he informed them that the access to Berlin was a privilege that the Soviet Union was granting to the Western powers, not a right to which they were entitled. Clay and Weeks uh, objected to this Soviet position, but Zhukov proposed a compromise that the access issue could be considered a temporary arrangement and brought up at a later uh, meeting of the Allied Control Council. But the Allies never pursued the matter, and the Soviets always tried to change the subject or stonewall when the matter came up. The air routes into the city were another matter, though. In 1945, concerns about air safety led to a written agreement between the powers about air routes into and out of the city, allowing for the creation of three routes or corridors. Traditionally, the U.S. Army has not been organized or trained for long-term occupations and has struggled with the task of civilian administration, even in recent conflicts such as in Iraq and Afghanistan. Prior to World War II, the Army's only major experience with occupation was Reconstruction after the American Civil War, some 80 years before, which had ultimately been a failure in many ways. After the war, it was agreed that the U.S. Army would establish a separate command in Germany for the administration of the American Occupation Zone under General Lucius Clay outside of Combat Command. General Clay was the military governor of the American Zone and thus had no combat troops under his command. Military government troops were expected to work with the local Germans to reestablish essential services and to govern the territory. I want to take a quick break here and thank you for listening uh, to the History of the Cold War podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share the show on social media or tell your friends to check us out. Also, take a moment to visit our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com one word, and please help support us through Patreon there so that we can keep the show coming to you. Or if you have a moment, uh, we have a survey there that if you could fill out could help us work on making you guys a better show. In other podcast news, we had one of our Israeli listeners tweet us about doing a show about Israel during the early Cold War, and that is something that we will be addressing in a future episode, so stay tuned. Also, I wanted to give a big thank you to the Cold War Project and the Wilson Center for retweeting us. I recommend that you check out their podcast on Cold War Sports, which I personally enjoy very much. Now on with the show. Before we describe the situation of post-war Berlin, some of this information is graphic and disturbing, and I just want to warn you. Berlin, like the rest of Europe, was heavily damaged from the war. The vast majority of buildings were destroyed as a result of Allied bombing and Soviet shelling. None of Berlin's 87 sewer systems were operational, and raw sewage ran open into the streets. So diseases like typhus and dysentery spread quickly. The city had been the site of a great battle as the Soviets had to storm the city, losing an estimated 81,000 soldiers in the process. In the following days, the Soviets looted, raped, and, and summarily executed thousands of German citizens. The survivors lived in cellars, ruins, and literally holes dug into the ground. Essential services like sanitation, gas, water, and electricity had broken down. In most parts of the city, power was only on for a few hours a day. The Soviets had appointed a provisional government in the days after the war composed of local German communists to help them run the city. 
The Soviets rebuilt the police force from the ground up. They placed hardcore communists in many of the top positions. Its forces were largely untrained, had no uniforms, weapons, records, or equipment in general. They had no police stations either, as the majority had been destroyed in the war. Of the original 11,000 officers in 1945, 10,000 would leave the department in the first year. Some found better jobs. Others were former criminals themselves or committed crimes on the job, whereas many others were former Nazis. Control of the police, though, would give the Soviets an edge in controlling the city. Berlin also faced the major problem of migration, as thousands of hungry refugees and ex-German soldiers crowded the streets and slept on the sidewalks. Moreover, Berlin, like the rest of Europe, was hit hard by famine. Cleric intake averaged just 1,500 per day, and 60% of that was from potatoes and bread. Doctors even petitioned the, to alter German laws to allow abortions in the first three months because German women were in such poor health they couldn't nurse their infants. As you can imagine, these conditions greatly affected people's day-to-day -day lives. Many women turned to prostitution or selling their bodies for food. It's common to see post-war pictures or movies of German women with British Tommies or American GI boyfriends, but many did this out of necessity and not love. Moreover, it wasn't just young women interested in allied soldiers. Middle-aged and or married women would think nothing of selling their bodies for some sea rations or cigarettes. Pimps and black marketeers thrived offering fake brandy, pornography, and children prostitutes as young as 10. Children in general during this period suffered greatly. They themselves were caught up in the sex trade selling their own bodies, and it was not uncommon for brothers to pimp their own sisters. Many Germans were forced into the black market because they needed to survive. Prices had soared far above wages, and many Germans found that it was impractical to work. A non-skilled worker at best could make 160 marks in a month, which could purchase little more than some black bread. Many people, such as university lecturer, lecturers, were not paid in money but in foodstuffs. The black market came to consume some 40% of German domestic agriculture. Overall, 50 to 60% of the German population in the Western sector participated in the black market. People were understandably reluctant to work when their pay was virtually worthless. Therefore, people devoted most of their time and energy to acquiring, stealing, or hoarding anything of real value in order to trade in the black market. The black market thus formed the core of Berlin's post-war economy, which was partially supplied by American GIs. Packages from home containing watches, soap, cash, and cigarettes were goods that could rapidly turn a profit in illicit, illicit trades. GI's weekly PX allotment of a carton of cigarettes, 10 candy bars, two bars of soap, and other items drew fabulous premiums in the black market. Cigarettes quickly became the primary commodity in black market trading and the unofficial currency and standard of value in most of the city. A carton of American cigarettes, which a GI could purchase for 50 cents at the PX, was priced at 1,500 marks or $150 in U.S. money on the black market. Theft was also a problem as warehouses and mess halls were robbed and pilfered of supplies to be sold on the black market. Crime itself was a huge problem in Berlin. Post-war Berlin, according to one historian, became the crime capital of the world, with 2,000 arrests a month. Gangs roamed the streets of Berlin, preying on the weak and poor. Violence and murder were a common occurrence. In 1946, over 177,000 crimes were reported to the police citywide. 46,000 of these took place in the American sector alone. Another serious issue was people disappearing off the streets of Berlin. Some of these kidnappings were political, others were criminal. The Allied occupation of Berlin was a fractious matter as well. 
The Soviets wouldn't let the Western powers take control of their respective zones until the Kumandatora was established. But the Soviets were intently delaying the establishment of the Kumandatora in order to buy time. The Soviets were using this time to systematically loot the Allied zone of Berlin for shipment back to the Soviet Union. Therefore, the Americans, without warning, just moved into their respective zone without Soviet permission. They took over their buildings and hung out American flags and posted notices announcing the establishment of military courts. The Soviets reacted quickly, ordering the Americans out, but when the Americans refused, the Soviets gave up and stopped their protests. There were many areas of immediate contention between the Allies and Soviets. One was the University of Berlin. The Allies wanted to jointly manage the university, but the Soviets refused, claiming full control of the university as it was in their sector of the city. The Soviets saw the university as a hollowed site since Marx had studied there. Another source of conflict was the radio station, which was again in the Soviet sector. The Soviets refused to share airtime with the Allies, limiting the British, American, and French to just one hour a day. The Allies and the Soviets argued over postage stamps, issues of food, and even bizarre issues like tattoo removal policies for the city. Despite the establishment of the Kumandatora, the former Allies often came to blows in their occupation of the city. People could freely travel back and forth between the different zones, as this was before the establishment of the Berlin Wall in 1961. The Soviet soldiers inevitably came into the Western sector drunk and or looking for loot whereas Allied soldiers often came across into the Soviet zone to meet girls, explore, or buy things. In one such incident, a group of Soviet soldiers stopped a girl in the American sector of Berlin and demanded to have her watch. When she refused, one of the soldiers shot her in the face, instantly killing her, after which the soldier took the watch and went on his way. The Americans reported the incident to the Soviet command, but they subsequently said it was the girl's fault. In another incident, 200 Soviet officers and men came into the American zone and began to loot an apartment block. When American MPs asked them to leave, the Soviets just ignored them. At this point, the Americans had enough, and violent confrontations started to happen between American MPs and Soviet soldiers in the American zone. There were more than a few shootouts between Soviets and American soldiers. The Soviets, in response, complained bitterly to the Americans about the deaths of their soldiers. The Soviets also violated the British zone. However, the British made it a policy of severely beating misbehaving Soviet soldiers and then unceremoniously dumping them back into the Soviet zone. A serious point of contention between the Allies and Soviets was the run-up to the municipal elections in the city. The Soviets backed an attempt by the German Communist Party, then known as the KPD, to merge with the German Democratic Socialist Party, the SDP, to form a, a new party, the SED, the Soviets had hoped to gain control of the municipal government through the SED via this merger, which would eliminate the major opposition party to the new SED. The proposal, however, was soundly defeated at the polls by the rank-and-file SDP members. Despite these setbacks, the SED and the Soviets were keen on winning the 1946 municipal elections. The SED began by offering free briquettes of coal distributed to the city with the party's logo. School children received notebooks, and around the city posters for the SED were plastered everywhere. The Soviets threw their full weight behind the SED. The Soviets distributed 30 million cigarettes to Berliners and a bottle of schnapps to each man and half a bottle to each woman. Radio Berlin stayed on late into the night, broadcasting a seamlessly endless list of released German POWs from Soviet captivity. 
They began to disperse fresh fruits and vegetables in the Soviet zone. It was then planned that the SED would publicly approach the Soviets and request that the Soviets make fruit and vegetables available to all sectors of Berlin, hence making the SED look good in the upcoming elections. When the Americans discovered the plan, they threatened to make the plot known to the media and that they would bring in oranges, lemons, and grapefruit from California if the Soviets didn't back down. Unable to meet the American bet, the Soviets folded. Despite these efforts, many Berliners were not feeling the SED burn. One satirical anonymous pamphlet read, quote, Were you raped by a Russian? Question mark. If so, vote for SED. Close quote. The Americans also opened their own new radio station, RIAS, which immediately started to cover the upcoming elections, although it strictly avoided any criticism of the Soviets. The Americans also began to pump supplies into the city in an effort to counter the Soviets. A million boxes of matches were distributed, along with 155,000 pairs of shoes and 16,000 bicycle tires. The city of Berlin had a long tradition of being a liberal and progressive city dating back to the days of Bismarck in the 1870s. During the Weimar Republic, Berlin was known for its erotic night entertainment venues. There were an estimated 500 such establishments that included a large number of homosexual venues for men and for lesbians. Sometimes transvestites of one or both genders were admitted. Otherwise, there were at least five known establishments that were exclusive for a transvestite clientele. In the late 1930s, Berlin was one of the last major holdouts to vote Nazi, and residents continued to greet each other with their traditional good morning versus the mandatory Hell Hitler. So when Berlin went to the polls on October the 21st, 1946, 92% of the eligible voters turned out to vote. The election was an utter defeat for the SED. The SPD received 48.7% of the vote, and even the conservative Christian Democrats came out ahead of the SED with 22.2% of the vote. In the end, the SED, despite all of its efforts, only received 9.3% of the vote. The Soviets responded by trying to limit the power of the new municipal government, saying that the new city government had limited powers under the Kumandatoria. Moreover, they refused to recognize Berlin's mayor and chose to identify him as a magistrate. The new government was a four-party coalition with the Social Democrat Otto Ostrowski as Lord Mayor, Paul Markov, Head of the police was appointed by the Soviets, kept his position, and continued to take orders from them. The new Lord Mayor tried to steer a middle course between the Allies and Soviets, focusing his efforts on rebuilding the shattered city. However, he was quickly informed by the Soviets that he was not to oppose the SED and that it was summoned to Soviet headquarters two or three times a week. A weak man, Ostrowski capitulated to Soviet threats, agreeing in writing to fully cooperate with the SED. When the agreement became public, he was denounced by the leadership of the SDP as a traitor, and under mounting political pressure, he resigned. He was succeeded by Ernst Rüder as, as a new Lord Mayor. Rüder and the tremendous determination of the German people to remain free of Soviet control would be critical to the success of the later airlift. Meanwhile, the cost of the occupation was enormous on the Allies. It was estimated that the United States was spending an estimated $200 million a year to maintain the occupation and another $700 million between Britain and the United States to feed West Germany. The occupation was costly in other ways as well. American troops in 1946 were contracting venereal disease at a rate of 306 cases per 1,000 men a month or nearly one in three American soldiers in Europe. In one extraordinary unit of 1,000 men, more than 1,200 cases were reported in one month. 
meaning some soldiers were hardly cured from one infection before contracting another. American troops in Europe were also getting themselves killed in car accidents at 12 times the rate as in the United States. The occupation was costing so much because Germany was failing to recover from the war because Germany had been divided into four small economic zones, unable to trade with each other. The French and the Soviets were blocking any efforts by the Allies to reintegrate the German economy. The French, like the Soviets, had been invaded by Germany three times in the last 70 years at a horrible cost. They wanted Germany to remain weak and broken, fearing a revived Germany. The Americans and British felt the economic pain of occupation the most. The British zone contained most of Germany's traditional industries such as steel mills and coal mines. The American sector had within it many of Germany's advanced industries like chemical refineries and automobile manufacturers. These two regions naturally complemented one another, and lack of coordination held back development in both, so Britain and the United States agreed to merge their zones of occupation. The other major issue was the nearly worthless occupation mark, which was crippled by inflation. Without addressing the issue, it would be impossible to get the German people out of the black market and back to work. The Americans and British had come to the conclusion that if they wanted to restart the German economy, they would have to reform the money system. The French, although they were opposed to rebuilding Germany, couldn't really stop the Americans and the British for a couple of reasons. For one, the British and Americans had lost hundreds of thousands of men in both world wars to liberate France. Second, France was dependent on American aid to rebuild their nation and to retain their colony of Indochina. So despite their misgivings, they went along with the plan. Naturally, the Soviets were opposed to the Americans and British integrating their zones of occupation and reforming the German currency without Soviet participation. The Allies had developed an occupation currency, the occupation mark, in early 1945, but the Soviets overprinted the new currency, undercutting its value, and refused to tell the Allies how much they had printed. Therefore, the Americans and British wanted a currency just for their zones without Soviet participation. The new currency was printed in the United States secretly beginning in October 1947 and shipped to Germany secretly under armed guard, where it was stored in bank vaults until a decision was reached on when it would be introduced. When the new currency was released, along with the American and British intention to integrate their occupation zones, the Soviets were livid, and the Allied Control Council in January 1948, Marshal Sokolovsky, announced that the Soviet government saw these moves as clear and gross violations of the previous inter-Allied agreements. Soviet interference with traffic between West Germany and West Berlin started in January 1948 when Soviet troops started stopping British and American military trains and started asking to check IDs. By March, the Soviets had walked out of the Allied Control Council in response to Allied efforts to form a new West German state. On April the 1st, the Soviets announced that no trains or trucks could leave or enter Berlin without inspection. In response, General Clay requested authority to prevent Soviet troops from boarding trains and to permit his men to shoot if necessary. The Joint Chiefs of Staffs rejected this proposal, but did allow Clay to call the Soviet bluff. Clay dispatched a train to Berlin with orders to not allow the train to be inspected. The Soviets merely moved the train to a holding yard where it remained for several days before or being ordered to turn around and steaming back to West Germany. In April, Clay ordered General LeMay to start flying supplies into the city. Twenty-five C-47 started delivering supplies into the city, delivering about 1,000 tons in April. Most of the C-47s were five years old, but had been racked up thousands of flight hours as they had been used extensively in World War II. 
Many still had their black and white painted stripes from the D-Day invasion. If you're familiar with the HBO series Band of Brothers or the older film A Bridge Too Far, these are the two-engine planes they jumped from. The age of these planes would be a challenge in the maintaining them throughout the airlift. The April crisis foreshadowed the Berlin blockade of June and provided the Air Force with some valuable lessons. Uh, procedurally, the Air Force found out that a shuttle system in which cargo-filled trailers were continually brought to the flight line for immediate loading was the most efficient method. General Clay and other U.S. officials also foresaw that the Soviets might try and totally blockade the city given the turbulent political situation. The Soviet-backed coup in February had just overthrown the democratic government in Czechoslovakia. Therefore, they began to stockpile food and coal, as at this point the planes and barges were still coming into the city unmolested. It's important to remember at this time, coal was the primary source of power for the city, and not just for the power plants. It heated homes, was used for cooking, fired the baker's ovens, and was converted to gas at municipal works. LeMay also requested a larger, more modern C-54 Skymaster with its four engines to help with future supply efforts. The C-54 could carry 13 tons of cargo versus the 7 tons of the C-47. The Soviets also made aggressive moves inside the city as well. On April the 1st, a squad of Soviet soldiers set up a roadblock near Gatkow, the airport in the British sector. The British responded by sending armored cars and 400 men and requested the Soviets to leave, which they did promptly. Radio Berlin broadcast misleading stories such as riots and Western troops firing on mobs of people protesting Western occupation, which caused a lot of confusion. Additionally, they reported that the water supply in the Western half of the city would fail, which caused a minor panic as fearful Berliners rushed to fill all their available containers with water. Soviet units also began conducting well-advertised maneuvers outside the city. Meanwhile, East German communists began to protest inside the city, attacking pro-Western leaders. On April the 20th, the Soviets announced a new set of restrictions on barge traffic into Berlin, and they tightened the requirements on travel by Germans. On June the 20th, all tr passenger travel in and out of the Soviet zone was prohibited, and vehicle traffic from the west was barred from entering the east. Barge and freight traffic was permitted but subject to inspection. It was also declared all import of the new Western mark currency into the Soviet zone was a crime. Shortly thereafter, the Soviets announced their own currency reform for East Germany. Then, on June the 23rd, at 11 p.m., the Soviet news agency announced that all traffic into and out of the city had been halted. The notice further decreed that neither coal nor electricity would be supplied to the Western sectors. Like a medieval fortress, West Berlin was now under a state of siege. The Soviet official state excuse for these changes was, quote, technical difficulties. One American commander told his, his men, quote, Gentlemen, you should know that if the Russians decide to come in, we have about two hours to live, close quote. The Western Allies combined had about 6,500 troops stationed in Berlin. The Soviets had 18,000 men in Berlin with another 300,000 in the East German zone, including heavy Stalin tanks which would easily overwhelm the lightly armed Allied forces. There was a reluctance on the part of the Washington to actually believe that the Soviets would condemn 2.5 million people to a slow death by starvation to achieve political ends. In contrast, the Soviets could not imagine that the Western Allies would allow Berlin to starve to death, and they were certain that they would withdraw from the city before such a thing happened. Once the Allies withdrew, they would achieve a huge political victory, demonstrating the weakness of the Allies to protect even a single city. 
Moreover, Soviet intelligence reassured Stalin in 1947 and 1948 that the Allies would abandon the city in the face of a blockade. Additionally, Stalin had watched as the communists had overthrown the democratic government in Prague, where the Allies did nothing but offer speeches, so he was confident that that they would back down as the Allies had done in 1938. The Soviets believed a victory in Berlin would counterbalance the Allied efforts in Germany and the Marshall Plan, and more Europeans would flock to the Red Banner in seeing the weakness of the Allied position. Stalin also hoped that an American defeat in Berlin would stoke American isolationist tendencies and they would leave Europe just as they had retreated uh, in on themselves in 1923 after they had given up on the occupation of the Rhineland after World War I. I know some of you must be thinking, wait, why didn't the Soviets and Stalin think the Allies might use an airlift to supply the city and try to stop them? The reason for this, I think, is twofold. For one, unlike the land routes into the city, the Allies had a written agreement granting them air routes into the city. To force down an Allied plane could be viewed as an act of war, and Stalin didn't want to start World War III. This is not to say that Soviet fighters didn't buzz airfields or fly into the air quarters. In one such incident, a Yak-3 accidentally crashed into a British airliner head-on, killing everyone in both planes. The Allies responded by having fighter planes escort armed transports. The Soviets subsequently backed down and apologized and told the Allies that they did not intend to interfere with their air corridors. Second, no one in history up to that point had carried out a similar airlift to support an entire city. From the Soviet perspective, the Germans had tried to resupply from the air the 6th Army at Stalingrad in World War II, a far smaller operation which resulted in a failure. So I can only imagine that they ruled out the possibility of an Allied airlift as impractical. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. Join us for our next episode where we will cover the actual airlift itself, the political events around the airlift, and what was actually happening in the city when the airlift was going on, in addition to how the Berlin blockade shaped Europe and the early to mid-Cold War. So make sure you catch our next episode on August the 1st, and don't forget to check out our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word, and to donate so we can keep bringing you more great episodes. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone.
Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.